0: common taste this is a podcast where we create and discuss homebrew content for tabletop rpgs
1: and today by the pricking of my thumbs something wicked this way comes
0: i'm ian woodworth and i'm joined by my co-host james Daly. and welcome to our halloween special (laughs) so james was that a twitch was that intentional
1: that was a twitch but it happens to work out so we can just go ahead and leave that one in for those who don't know i was a bond villain in a past life
0: Today we are going to be doing a monster mash of sorts. We're going to be building a one-shot using a Halloween-themed monster. One that I feel doesn't get enough love, which is the hag.
1: So we're we're going to be
0: building building ourselves a scenario in three acts to be done as a one-shot, hopefully... It may end up being something that's a little bit long and has to be broken down into two sections, but theoretically be a one shot that has a coven of hags as the focal point for it.
1: Yeah, we had debated this for a little while. We knew we definitely wanted to do something special for Halloween just because it's a favorite holiday and vampires have been overdone and lycanthropes are cool, but they get a lot of play too. And we're sitting there thinking, yeah, you could do some of the demons or the Fallens or the Devils, but hags, they're kind of beefy. And like Ian was saying, they don't get played much, and they bring in one of my favorite aspects of the game, Faustian bargains.
0: Yeah, James loves him some Faustian bargains. And hags make a wonderful mid-game recurring villain. And the wonderful thing about hags is they don't necessarily even have to be a villain. They can just be a foil to use to give the party something that they need that can have some sort of consequence that reveals itself later.
1: Right, yeah. Hags kind of run the gamut between that chaotic neutral to chaotic evil or neutral evil. Generally in the books, they're listed as neutral evil. But like Ian says, they're a great foil. They can be there. If you make a deal with your hag, you always want to count your fingers afterwards. It's one of those things.
0: Yeah, and I happened to see on Reddit about a week ago, someone posting for a warlock patron being a grandmother hag.
1: Yeah, that would be a wonderful idea. And that would be so, you could do that with so many different flavors.
0: And a lot of people want to lump that up under Archfey because the hags are fay. But by the lore, hags exist outside of the power structure of the fey courts because they view repulsiveness as beauty and they often try to make themselves look as repulsive as possible. They don't fit in with the fey courts, which are the exact opposite. They value beauty and they view beauty as a commodity. So the hags tend to be completely separate from the summer and winter courts And if a hag is present in one of the courts of the Archfey, that hag is probably one of the most powerful people in that gathering, with the exception of maybe the queens of the Archfey themselves.
1: Hey, you're talking about the hags and the way they want to corrupt beauty and stuff like that. I immediately, my mind pictures the scene in Fight Club with Tyler Durden, where he's sitting there and he's like, I just want to destroy something beautiful. And that is the entire motivation behind most hags is they like taking they can polymorph their things into beauty but what they like doing is they like taking those beautiful pure things and corrupting them and making them dance like they're little puppets
0: so we had talked about this for a little bit and we are going to be making this as a level 11 one shot we had talked about possibly even designing this one shot to be used in our homebrew showcase for our level 11 characters
1: So what we kind of want to do in this episode is, like I said, we are giving you, this is your trick or treat. So this is hopefully our treat rather than a trick, but we're going to present to you this scenario. We're going to go over how we designed the scenario, things we thought about, things we bantered back and forth. So hopefully by listing, this will give you an idea of how to build your own little one shots or even to link scenes in for a larger campaign, things you want to look for, things you kind of want to branch off of or use as a foundation, how not to overwhelm your characters, trying to plan the time of a campaign or a session can be incredibly difficult we might touch on that because like I said that really depends on how well the party works and how much caffeine they've had and how the dice are rolling really but that can be a challenge for a dm if you know you only have so many hours to get people in a group and then how do you plan for that amount of time
0: right and that's another thing as a dm you don't always have control over that because you might have this scenario laid out and say okay this scenario with these encounters should last three hours And then you get to hour two and you're at the 30 minute mark still because they found some merchant that they wanted to talk to and went off on a wild hair and they ended up out in the woods doing something completely off topic because that's what your players will do.
1: I don't know how many times the druid has run off wanting to pet the kitty. And of course, you know, well, the kitty's not going to let their get pet. So you got to have the kitty run off and then there goes the whole party.
0: Or, you know, you have the bard that wants to lick the polymorph dragon.
1: Well, I mean, the bar had shut down. I hadn't had a drink in a while. Toad licking is a thing. Didn't know it was a dragon. Well, yeah, I do it was a dragon. You did didn't know realize. it was a dragon.
0: You polymorphed it. I knew it was
1: a dragon. It. No, I didn't polymorph it. The sorcerer polymorphed it. You polymorphed did. it. Did I polymorph it? You I thought the sorcerer polymorphed, polymorphed it. A toad. That's right. And then I had to catch it so it didn't fall. Yeah, you're right. Okay. Well, fine. <laughs> you know what? It's <laughs> not a party unless you're licking a toad. I'm just saying.
0: All right. So where do we want to start off on this? Do we want to start off at the beginning of our scenario setup? Or do we want to start off by talking about the hags that we're going to be using?
1: Let's start our scenario setup, because that's one of the things. We did this a little backwards, in my opinion, but it worked out. And that's one thing, you know, you can either start at the beginning, or sometimes if you can't start at the beginning of a story, people say start and know your ending and work backwards. So in this case, we went backwards. We knew we wanted a villain. We wanted to do something particular for Halloween. We knew we were going to have hags. So how do you have a hag encounter?
0: So yeah, a hag encounter, which you're going to be wanting to decide at the beginning is... Are you going to have a solitary hag or are you going to have a coven? Because you're going to be running the two in a completely different manner. A coven of witches is more likely to stand its ground and slug it out than a single solitary witch will. Or single solitary hag will. Yeah, I may have said witches, I meant hags. It's been a
1: day. So in this case, we chose a Kevin because, again, we knew we were shooting around level 10 or 11, something good mid-range level. We didn't want an opening scenario. So that gave us a starting point. Now, as you explore the books, there's different kinds of hags. There's a sea hag, there's the green hag, there's the night hag, there's the anise hag, and the burr hag. Those are your main ones. And each of those hags tend to gravitate towards a geographic type of location. Like a sea hag tends to be along your coasts and your oceans. Your green hags tend to be forests and swamps. Your night hags are kind of everywhere. Your anise hags are a little more mountainous. So with those, we decided for this group that we actually are going to have a coven of hags. It's going to be one night hag, one green hag, and one anise hag. So this gave us, we're probably going to have the old German dark forest leading into a swamp of some sort. So that kind of gives us, now we have a little bit of a setting. So now how do we tie that in? Why do we care there's hags here? Or how do we know there's hags here? And that leads us to story building at this point, an actual arc building. So now we've kind of got a foundation so now we got to build our framework around what this idea is going to be
0: what we ended up doing was we had our decision to make a coven we decided what kind of hags we're putting in our coven and then we went to the complete opposite end of the scenario for our hook we had to figure out what are we going to have as a hook to bring the players in to make them ultimately end up at the hags
1: and that hook can always be a tricky part. Mid-level is generally easier. Now a one-off, you're still starting off. That's where you find the old trope. You all gather up at a bar or a tavern, something like that. In this case, we determined that a letter had gone out that there was a nobleman looking for uh, mercenaries or an adventuring group. And so somehow the party has gotten a flyer or a letter or they've heard a town crier, but they've heard that there's a village or a town and a nobleman in the town is looking for someone to get their hands dirty for him.
0: Or it could be something as simple as they just finished a job and they're on their way to another town for another job and just happen to be passing through.
1: That is also a possibility, yes.
0: That's the wonderful thing about one-shots, especially whenever you've got one-shots with higher level characters, is that it's easier to just say you guys are an adventuring group that have been together for a while. And you are en route from point A to point B and this is some filler in the
1: middle. And so what we've come up with so far for our story is that as you come in, you meet this noble. And this noble, he has definitely seen better days. He's horribly scarred. He's been burnt. He barely has the use of his legs. He's crippled. And he starts to tell you a story. And then the story he tells you about when he was younger, he was a young man. He was handsome kind of like the most eligible bachelor type thing. On the road into the town, he met a group of fortune tellers. And being a rich nobleman, he decided to have them tell his fortune. And they gave him just the basic, you know, oh, you'll marry so-and-so, you'll do this, you'll do this. And he could tell they were just making up stuff. And he wanted more of a fortune. And they said, instead of telling us a fortune, what fortune do you want? And he said he wanted to be powerful, he wanted to be rich, and he wanted to be well-known. And they said, okay, it'll happen. And then they vanish. He wanders his way back to his town. Days pass, nothing happens. He gets kind of bitter because he paid the gold to these fortune tellers. Nothing happened. He doesn't think anything of it. And then one night, a group of marauders break into his house. They kill his family. They beat him. They burn down his manor. They leave him for dead. He's able to escape the house, but now he's crippled. He is horribly burnt and disfigured. His family's been lost. However, because his family's been lost, he's the sole heir to all of his family's fortune. He's inherited his family's power. He's inherited all of his family's money. And now he's known as the noble who was once very nice and very beautiful, who is now hideous and disfigured. He got his fame. He got his power. He got his fortune.
0: Yeah, but in a typical hag fashion, he didn't get it the way he wanted it.
1: And that's how a lot of the hag works go. With other creatures too, that's like I said, I tend to like the Faustian bargains. A wish spell can be really fun. You can let your players wish for almost anything. And then how literal you make that wish can be a lot of fun. That's one of those things you can kind of tinker and play with. Kind of like those fairy promises where by the word, everything was exact. You didn't stipulate how or why. By the word, I wanted to be famous. Okay, well, what are you famous for? That guy had half his head eaten by a bear. Everyone's going to know that guy, right?
0: I was going to say, if you're the sort of DM who likes twisting a wish, you're going to be the type of DM who loves to run hags. And if you haven't run hags before, you owe it to yourself to run some hags in one of your games.
1: So now we've got our main villain or our main point. We've got our plot to the story and our beginning. So we kind of broke it up and we were thinking on how to flesh everything out. My mind kind of went to the whole Shakespearean play type thing, so generally three or four acts. So I figured three acts are good because it kind of gives you something to do, a break that's generally where you would hope that your party would take a long rest or go take a bio break at that point. You can kind of pick up action again, go through another set of scenarios, another break, and then towards your last set of scenarios and final combat and things like that. You and I had discussed that. We decided that a 3 acts play would work. So now we needed to build... The first act and since we're meeting this nobleman at his village or his town act one village or town
0: i didn't want it to be stereotypical gloomy overcast always dreary sort of place i wanted it to look inviting at least on the surface to be something that didn't immediately tip off the players to there being something sinister at work here the thing that i thought about as we discussed for why this is, perhaps several of the townsfolk got together and made a bargain with the hags to where the town and the immediate environs always had beautiful weather good for growing crops. So you always have ample rainfall, sunny skies during the day. It's never too hot in the summertime. It's never too cold in the wintertime.
1: So as a DM, when you're describing this, these are things you can describe. And Any good story is going to have a lot of detail like that. Even when I play games, I will play games for two main reasons. One story, because I love lore. And then two, how immersive is the game atmosphere? Alien Isolation is a great game for atmosphere. Darkest Dungeon is another great game for atmosphere. Versus something like, I don't know, Mario Brothers, where it's just kind of loud and there's a little things in the background and the atmosphere doesn't matter. But the more you can kind of let your player's imagination run wild and put themselves in a town or the scenario, or the setting, the better. So Ian and I were discussing this, so you have this brightly, it's a well-lit town, you've got the big center fountain going, you've got the shops, things, you've got your cobblestone streets, but yet everything looks a little worn down, kind of like if you think an older amusement park.
0: All of the paint is sort of sun-bleached, and starting to crack and chip in spots. All of the metal fixtures For like the signposts and the fountain are starting to show signs of tarnish and rust. Just the early signs of neglect.
1: Everything kind of has that hollow feel. Kind of like a diet soda. It kind of tastes right, but then it kind of doesn't.
0: And one thing that I really wanted to emphasize is that the issue is going to be the townsfolk. The townsfolk aren't going to really want to talk to the party.
1: And so that's how we started deciding to build. Okay, so act one, this is how we're going to build. So now there's some sort of things look pretty, but now you're getting in this town. And as you get in this town, you're getting this ominous feel. And if we're going to be dealing with townsfolk and the townsfolk seeing odd themselves, well, who are our townsfolk going to be? And this is where we decided we needed to build a list of NPCs. Who they were, what are they going to do? So if you're going to be walking into town, what NPCs would you expect to see? Well, you're going to have a shopkeeper, obviously, or an innkeeper. So we need a shopkeeper. There's probably going to be a mayor. We have our noble. We've got some farmhands because, as we said, that's probably one of the things. It's like a small farming community. Who else did we get thrown in?
0: There was a priest because we had a small chapel in the town. You had a bard in town that was doing some sort of anthropological research.
1: Correct. And those were the main of our NPCs. And each of these NPCs will have a role in the town. So obviously, like, if your players want to go shopping, they're going to meet the shopkeeper. If they want information, they're probably going to try to find the bard. We had discussed maybe putting in, like, a place of records or a library. But we decided that a traveling bard would probably be work better for a smaller town. Obviously, travelers are going to need a place to stay. So there's going to be an inn or an innkeeper of some sort. So we developed a small little bit of story for each of these characters and gave them some quirks. Gave them a little bit of backstory so as we describe them to our characters, they'll have a bit of a personality things to flesh out.
0: And I really wanted this to have, at least from an NPC standpoint, a very Shadow over Innsmouth sort of feel. The Lovecraft story where everything just seems a little bit off. And the longer you're there, the more you pick up on it just being something's not right. But you can never quite put your finger on exactly what's going on, what's wrong with this picture until everything just goes sideways.
1: And again, that helps build up for the atmosphere for the scenario. So we've got our NPC. So we've got our little stand-ins. We've got our setting. So what are the players going to do in this town? Well, we've got some shopping options. Not every campaign not every session is going to be a slugfest. So we definitely wanted some sort of maybe a persuasion or intimidation or subtlety type roles. So we built up a scenario for that. We obviously want some research roles, some investigation type things. So we have put some things in there for that. There is going to be some combat in Act 1, obviously. So these are different things you have to think of. How do you want this particular session to feel? And you need to hit or try to cover every aspect, a chance for your players to roleplay a chance for your players to fight, a chance for your players to interact with each other, a chance for your players to interact with the NPCs.
0: Yeah, a chance for your players to use their skills, because your skills tend to go into the backseat in d and a lot, because the system in and of itself is very combat-oriented and designed so that you it encourages combat.
1: It encourages murder hobos.
0: It really does.
1: And that's part of the adventure too. And we're being vague in this session about how we have the scenarios built a little bit on purpose. Like I said, we might use this for the showcase, though when this comes out, we are hoping to have some maps presented and we're going to try to write this up like one of the D&D scenarios from one of the D&D tech. So if you come on and find us on Instagram or our Facebook page, we should hopefully have these all written out that you can go and actually find these and load these up like a module.
0: That's the hope anyway.
1: Yeah. Best laid plans. So we have all these scenarios. So we've built the scenario. We've got our people we're going to talk to. We're going to end Act 3 with a bit of combat. And so the thing we need to consider now is what is the trigger for that combat?
0: Act 1.
1: Yes, Act 1. Well, Act 3 is going to have combat too, but Act 1 is going to end with combat. And what's the trigger for that combat?
0: Right. So the trigger that we had was the majority of the town has some sort of connection with the hags. The connection varies from person to person and the significance of their connection varies from person to person. Ultimately, there's going to be a point where the NPCs in the town catch wind that the party is snooping, and they don't want them snooping for whatever reason, and so they will contact the hags, and the hags will send orders to remove the issue.
1: And so this brings us up to our first bit of combat. Act one is going to be a little lighter on combat, so this would be the big one. So this kind of comes into how much fighting are you expecting your party to do and how to balance combat for a party. Mm -hmm. You can use the challenge rating system, which is a fairly good system. You take the XP of all your monsters, you add them together, you divide by the number of players and then depending on the level, that filters through. I have found recently there's a website called the Kobold Fight Club. You can put in your player's level, how many players you have, and then you can start picking your monsters, and it'll give you an idea about how challenging the scenario is going to be. One of the things that Ian knew he wanted is he wanted a particular creature to fight in this scenario for doing something called a Banderhob. So again, a bander hob is going to be... Uh, well, I'll let Ian describe the Banderhob.
0: The Banderhob is a giant frog monster. They are created by hags. I believe, according to lore, it's night hags that make Banderhobs.
1: I think so, yes.
0: But they are a large sized monstrosity that they're basically kidnappers. They show up, they can shadow step, they step out of the shadows, they slap you with their tongue and swallow you. And while you're inside of a Banderhob, you take necrotic damage. But once you hit zero hit points, you stabilize. So you just go unconscious and you stabilize inside of this banderhob until they regurgitate you at whoever it was that sent them after you.
1: So for our combat scenario, what we were thinking was after you've talked to the townspeople and they know something's up and they're going to try to somehow communicate and notify the hags, when you sleep, you'll most likely sleep at the end, but you sleeping in the town will be the trigger for combat and the Banderhub with other minions that he will be bringing with him is going to try to split the party, most likely in the tavern or the inn. And that's where your big combat session is going to be. We were trying to think about this. We were thinking the old typical style of narrow hallway end with doors on each side. And we realized that that was going to be kind of tight, close quartered combat. My mind kind of started thinking about the old Western saloons where you had the strip of small apartments or rooms above the bar. And that's what we decided to go with. So at this point, hopefully when the first party is attacked or whatever happens, there's going to be some noise. The other party's going to come out. People will be thrown down into the tavern floor area. And then you get to have yourself a good old-fashioned bar fight
0: and it being the first combat of the scenario we really wanted to make sure that it wasn't a very difficult fight all told so the challenge for it is going to be fairly low it should be a bunch of things that the party can fairly easily mop up because you don't really want to take a huge amount of time with your combats until you get to the big one at the end
1: so in this case your party might take a bit of a bruising but they're not taking too heavy of a beating.
0: And then they're going to have the option of going back to finish their long rest. So they'll be able to start off with their full complement of spells and abilities and hit points.
1: And another thing we needed to build into this combat session too was we were hoping that the party would maybe possibly keep... A survivor to interrogate, but I've seen enough parties, I've seen enough role-playing, I've seen enough games where dice skip flying and everybody kind of gets that bloodlust, and as often as not, the party just wipes everybody out. So we definitely wanted also a way built in for the party to find information if they did not leave any survivors to tell tail any tales.
0: We had to build a second hook, basically a bridge from act one to act two.
1: We will probably cover this more in the write-up we're trying to keep this kind of vague because we don't want to have our players know too much as they come in and play. But we do have that bridge built in. And then the players get to take the long rest. And this is where we get to talk about our first hag, the Night Hag.
0: The Night Hag is actually one of the few hags that is not a fae any longer. They've been corrupted by, I think it's demonic power...
1: Yeah, they're corrupted. They are fiends and no longer fae.
0: Yeah, they are fiends and no longer fae. And the wonderful thing about night hags is that they have the ability to become ethereal. And while they're ethereal, they can use an ability called Nightmare Haunting, where they touch a creature from the ethereal plane and give them nightmares that will keep them from gaining the benefits of a long rest and will reduce their maximum hit points. And they're able to plant seeds of thought into this creature and try and drive it to corrupt its soul to make it perform evil deeds.
1: So this can be a lot of fun for the DM, particularly if you know your players. So if your player happens to be terrified of spiders, then you know what? That player's going to have a bunch of spider dreams. If the player's terrified of clowns, then you know what? There's going to be a whole bunch of clowns. And there's all kinds of things. And this is also one of those times where the DM can write something on a note And slip it to the player and your dream told you this for whatever reason. As imaginative as you can be building up that world, building up that scenario, making the whole thing immersive for your characters. If you have time, you could do a whole nightmare scape. If you're trying to do more than just a one-off, or if you have a large chunk of evening, you can have the rest of the group take a break, and whoever's having the nightmare, you could just do a one-on-one session with them for five, ten minutes of the nightmare they're going to have. So there's a lot of different ways you can kind of play with this nightmare mechanic. It can be a lot of fun.
0: You're not really going to be able to get a whole lot in depth with this mechanic in a one-shot. This is definitely a mechanic that would benefit having a recurring villain that over an entire story arc is going to appear several times, and they're going to have to, because there's no save to it, you have to hope that someone wakes them up before the full duration so that they can try and break out of the nightmare. Or there are various magical countermeasures that you can take. You can do a ward against good and evil or you can set up a magic circle around your camp, and that will keep a night hang out.
1: And the other tricky thing about the Nightmare mechanic is if your character suffers from the Nightmare, they don't get the effects of their long rest. So anytime they would regenerate spells, anytime they would regenerate an ability, they don't get that.
0: They don't recover if hit they... points. They don't recover hit dice.
1: Right. And then if they continue to have these Nightmares, then they start getting into a fatigued state, and they start losing hit points. And a night hag can actually kill a player just from nightmares. Without ever physically touching the player, it's just they drop from exhaustion.
0: And if a night hag manages to kill a creature that is evil at their time of death, they get to steal their soul. Which means that you have to figure out how to get that soul back before you can resurrect that creature.
1: And so again, that can be a wonderful mechanic, particularly for a reoccurring character or a reoccurring villain. So this will probably be the first real encounter with the hag. will be via the Nightmare and the night hag, And that will be part of that bridge from Act 1 to Act 2. So as we move into Act 2, we're moving away from the village. We've hopefully gotten all the information we need. We have an idea of where the coven is located, where we're going. And so this kind of becomes more of your traveling murder hobo type of scenario. So you're going to be going down a road. There might be bandits. There might be different things. But then we wanted to... Kind of introduce the German dark forest of the fairy tale type of world. So now you're going into that dark forest where we're going to have more combat and stuff. Act two is going to be more combat oriented than Act one was.
0: And we actually did create an NPC that we have for act two, in case the party goes all murder hobo in town and kills everyone. And so they just wander out into the woods. We did create a woodsman in act two that can act as a guide of sorts.
1: So this is plan C if your party decides to ignore all the signs and decides to maybe split the party three different ways again. So in Act 3, like we had said, we wanted this to be a bit more combat oriented because we were light on combat for Act 2. So we got together and we kind of discussed, there's different kinds of combat, there's different scenes. So what were the things we wanted to see, kind of keeping with the Halloween theme a bit? So we knew we wanted definitely some traps to lay in, so that you're going to have some traps or investigation checks, because what's a good campaign or a good scenario with having traps?
0: And I really wanted the haunted forest where the plants come to life and try to get you.
1: So you can tell Ian really enjoyed Wizard of Oz when he was a child with the big apple trees grabbing everybody. Actually, I did not. (laughs) Really?
0: I was not a fan of the Wizard of Oz. Heretic. I think what it was, was I just didn't appreciate the cinematic style as a child. I was bored by the cinematic style as a kid.
1: So what Ian is saying is that he's a heretic and the Inquisitors have not found him yet. So yeah, for this, we decided because this is going to be broken up into two or three different combat scenarios, we didn't want something just to pound and pulverize our party. So again, we were looking at more of a what we call a wide board. So a lot of little squishy monsters that they can surround you and overwhelm you with numbers, but you're not going to have a giant beast that's going to go and thump everybody on the head and, and one or two shot a player generally.
0: And James is James is much better at putting together these smaller encounters than I am. I am very much a big set piece combat sort of deal. I am a one combat per session DM. And it's hard for me to figure out, okay, I'm going to put this little group of people here that they're going to run into and then this completely different little group of people here that they're going to run into... And just sort of whittle them down.
1: And that's a thing to consider too with combat. Ian tends to give you that big in-scenario boss. You know, the big guy, he's got all the armor and the party just goes ham on the guy and takes forever and they beat him down. I like Battles of Attrition, kind of going back into the style of games we play. Ian tends to like the clerics and the barbarians and the fighters. And he's just that big. And I tend to be, again, more of the subtle player where curses and poisons. And I'll just take a little Nick here. And I'll take a little nick here and a little nick here. So I tend to do a bunch of smaller combats. So the first combat's actually going to run in three phases. So we have a point to where they might be able to see an ambush. And if they fail the perception check, they're going to walk into an ambush. The party's going to get attacked. As that attack's going, a second wave's going to come in. And then finally a third wave. But it still should be fairly manageable. These are all generally like challenge rating or CR creatures. But they're going to be like CR one quarter, CR one half for a level 11 party. Any one of them should be able to smush just about anything with a good solid hit from any of their skills or abilities. They're not going to stand up to a whole lot. But what it is going to do is it's going to cause your characters to burn those abilities, particularly if they just go full bore into fighting. So this kind of teaches your players a bit of resource management, which I tend to like and is always a part of the game for me, is you don't just go and burn off all your high-level spells real quick. You always want to have one or two aces up your sleeve just in case.
0: Yeah, you can end this combat in one t- Turn with a fifth level spell. But that means that when you hit the big bad at the end of the encounter, you don't have that fifth level spell.
1: Exactly. And if your characters are always expecting the same thing and they're always expecting that one big bad, then they're just going to burn everything. But if you can kind of keep them guessing, is this the big combat or is this a little one? Is this a feint? Is this a tease? It keeps the characters guessing. And again, it's part of that immersion where they don't know what's coming up. It pulls them in versus something that they're going to expect is coming. So we'll have our first phase of combat that's going to come in three waves. At that point, I figure they're probably going to want to take a rest, be a short rest, but probably preferably a bit of a long rest. This will give us another chance for another night hag encounter, which is great. And then I set up a random encounter for a forest. Again, everybody's sleeping. It's at night. It's Halloween. Spiders everywhere. And again, this encounter will be really small. It'll be a random encounter. It might be two or three large spiders. Again, the party should be able to squish them real easy. It's just enough to kind of break up that long rest. So if they can get everything done quickly and then say, hey, we're going to retake our long rest, they can still get that full benefit. It gives the night hag again another encounter with the party. It breaks up the monotony of the game a little bit. So that can be kind of a fun way to split things up.
0: So I'm actually thinking that it would fit better and it would feel more appropriate for the party to take their long rest after the second of these combat encounters that we've put in.
1: Okay, we could do that.
0: Because that second encounter is going to be a bigger heavier hitting encounter to begin with and this encounter i don't think i'm going to give away too much the big monster in this encounter is going to be a shambling mound it's a cr5 it does have you know lightning absorption but all in all a shambling mound for a party of four level 11 characters whenever you've got a bunch of little between cr one quarter and cr two monsters around all plant-based monsters that shambling mound isn't going to be a huge threat Fireball!
1: (laughs) Fireball! (laughs) Excuse me.
0: (laughs) But a Shambling Mound has only got something like 140 hit points, which really isn't a huge amount of health for a level 11 party, considering that we're going to be not throwing the Shambling Mound in at the very beginning. The Shambling Mound is going to show up after a couple of turns, so they're going to have those first two turns to really knock down all of these little piddly monsters and then they get this Shambling Mound that comes out, probably with one or two monsters left out on the board, it'll be really easy for them to mop this up. This was not intended to be a very difficult combat encounter.
1: Not at all. A combat like this, particularly a wide board, which is the type of board I like, also helps the party, particularly with a one-off. It's not as often on the list. The players have played together, but this does teach the party kind of how to focus fire and kind of coordinate their attacks versus everybody just blindly throwing dice at things and attacking whatever's closest, if your party can learn to work together and help each other with skills or help each other with abilities, whether it be positioning or flanking, different things like that, this can be actually a really fun skill to develop within your party because that really adds to party cohesion.
0: And so we're going to be coming out of this combat, probably with a short rest, leading into the transition from the forest to the swamp.
1: And again, this will be up to DM to describe what's going on with the party, any kind of a party interaction, to describe the scenery and how it's all changing. And then we get our first real swamp combat. So everything's Halloween theme. We've got hags. We've got some random swamp creatures. We've had some plant monsters, but ghosts. We need ghosts. So I know I really wanted an incorporeal combat. I'm having a really hard time saying that tonight. But I wanted some ghosts and some baddies to throw around. Ian's Contribution, I do want to throw these in, was actually kind of a really good one. Something that's really small, that gets overlooked a lot, that can really do a lot of damage that people don't think a lot of, are Will-O-Wists.
0: Yeah, will o punch way above their weight class
1: so high it's their agility scores like a 26 or their yeah x of 28 i mean seriously they're as dexterous as a dragon is intelligent i mean it's just you're not touching them and they're going to sit there and they've got this little tiny shock and that's what they're going to do just they're going to shock you to death if you've ever played starcraft it's kind of like that probe with that little shock but you can't kill it
0: and they have life drain too so If you do happen to hit, they can get in there and get a life drain on you and get all of that back. Because they have insane immunities and resistances on top of being really hard to hit.
1: And most of the incorporeal creatures tend to have resistance to any kind of physical attack. So this is where your mages, your clerics, sometimes your monks are really going to shine. If your party's got any kind of magic items at this point, they're really going to want to use those because otherwise they're going to hit a ghost and the ghost is like, oh, that tickles. So we've got some ghosts. We've got the Will-O-Wisps. And something Ian and I both like, as we've mentioned before, are those recurring characters. So we've actually built in a possibility. So at the end of combat at Act 1, there's a possibility that our Hob decides to flee. And if the party lets him flee and goes away, then the Hob will show up in this combat towards the end of Act 2 as well. And at this point, they can fight that same character. He's obviously going to be a little weakened, but he's definitely going to go toe-to-toe. He's going to go till he drops on this one. So again, you kind of get that, oh, it's that guy we didn't finish off this time, and now he's come back and now he's hunting us down, kind of gives you a little bit of that feel to things.
0: And a giant frog monster in a swamp just feels right. And we had a few other, I think we were basically doing this as sort of a showcase of the different incorporeal undead. Because we ended up just about adding one of everybody to this.
1: A little bit. It's kind of like a sampler plate.
0: And we added some Bullywugs, I think
1: it was. Yeah, we threw in a couple Bullywugs because that Banderhub's going to come in with his little Bullywug minions. Basically, a Bullywug's going to be almost a smaller Banderhub. They kind of look the same. They're kind of like little frog creatures with little spears. The neat thing about the Bullywugs is with the incorporeal creatures, we do have a Wraith there as well. And one of the reasons we want the Bullywugs is one of the Wraith's abilities to create a specter. So if a humanoid creature dies within an hour violently, that Wraith can actually resurrect that creature and have them fight on its behalf. The Hob would have been really cool for that, but the Hob's a fiend and not considered humanoid. Is
0: a monstrosity.
1: So, yeah, monstrosity. Yes, exactly. Sorry. So the Hob's a monstrosity, not considered humanoid. So that wouldn't work. So we definitely wanted to throw in the potential to use that Create Spectre ability with the Wraith.
0: And Bullywugs are only, I think, either challenge rating one quarter or one half. They're really tiny. They're really squishy. They're going to be an annoyance that the party is just going to say, Okay, we can squish them. Squish. And now the specter shows up. It's like, you haven't even seen my final form.
1: Nice reference. Well that. Love that. So after this combat, this will kind of wrap up act two. And when we end act two, you're going to hopefully take your long rest, which again will give you a, another encounter with your night hag. And in the distance on a good perception check, you should hopefully be able to see the hut that is the den of your hag coven.
0: That leads us into act three. And Act 3 is going to be the encounter with the
1: hags. So as we're going to come up, you're obviously going to see, be it a hut, be it a small house, be it a shanty, be it maybe just a cave, but you're going to have the entrance to where the hag coven is. Hag fights can be interesting because when a hag fights, a hag's going to fight full bore. But if a hag has to fight, that means they've burnt all of their other options. So combat in Act 3 can end particularly fast because those hags have power and everybody has desires. Can we make a deal? At this point, it becomes party members. How greedy are they? How wary of the hags are they? The hags might sit there and say, we know why you're here. We'll magic up a replica that's going to look like each of our heads and you can take it to your noble lord. We can give you money. We can give you power. We can give you gold. We can give you whatever you want. Take these to him. Tell him we're dead. He won't know the difference. End of Act 3, your party gets all their experience. There you go. Now you've got a recurring character. What did they get? What did they give up in exchange for their wish? So that is one way this whole scenario could end, possibly.
0: Because, like James said, a hag is going to want to try and make a deal. They get their power from making deals.
1: They're going to try to do their best to bribe the party because fighting is really a waste of the hag's energy. Their time, that all could be used for much more entertaining purposes. They can mop the floor with you, they think, and they're pretty sure. But why spend the energy? Because, like I said, that could be used for other things. But if you do happen to choose door number two, you decide you want the trick rather than the treat. Well, then these hags are going to throw down. And at this point, I think we get to break down the hags and kind of do our player breakdown as it was.
0: Okay, so the one thing that I really wanted was for there to be an established lair with layer effects. You get this with a lot of your more powerful creatures. You see this with Strahd and the Curse of Strahd, his manner, he has layer abilities going on. For those of you who have watched Critical Role, the fight with Thordak In season one, the red dragon, where they went into his lair to fight him, the things that happened in there, the volcanic eruptions and the poison gas and all of that, that's all indicative of the lair of a red dragon. So I wanted some sort of feel that would make it more obvious that you are in the seat of these hags' power. And so what I settled on was within the hag's lair, all magical healing is halved.
1: So that's a really, that takes a lot of wind out of your sails, particularly if your party is healing heavy. If you have a lot of squishy characters, if you have a lot of sorcerers and wizards that tend not to have the higher hit die, having that magical healing, because now your potions work only half as good, your heal spells only work half as good, that can definitely throw a twist in things real fast.
0: It gives you more incentive to nuke it quick. Or bargain. Or bargain, or bargain. Yes. bargain Yeah. But I don't know as if... That would be something that you could tell that there was something off, but you would have to make a skill check, an arcana or a religion check, in order to figure out exactly what in the world's going on.
1: I would definitely make that an arcana check. So we put some thought of how to make this mechanic work. Something Ian had thought of was something to symbolize the mechanic or kind of to focus it on. And Ian came up with the idea of candles, which I kind of like because it fits with the whole idea of a hut or candle with the light. So you see lots of magical candle type things.
0: I really wish that I could claim credit for this. I read this on a Reddit post that has been lost in the ether probably six, eight months ago. But the concept is you're in the hags lair and you're fighting the hags and you manage to drop one of them. And then you notice one of the candles that is lit in the room snuffs out and the hag stands back up. So it then gives you the secondary objective where, oh, hey, there's something up with these candles. If we snuff out the candles, we're going to have some sort of advantage here.
1: And so at this point, We had the debate because having your magical healing, that does take a lot of wind out of the sails. That can be a really big swing one direction or the other as far as balance goes. So we had a debate of how many of these candles do we want Are there going to be like, is it going to be a wall full of candles? So these hags are basically immortal. Is it going to be just one candle, one candle for each? Again, kind of holding with the Halloween theme, we decided to stick with five. So maybe the hag's cauldron that they're working on, where they're doing their spell work, is in the middle of a pentagram. And at each point of the pentagram is a candle. Now, granted, there might be candles along the walls, but these are obviously special candles. If someone were to use a detect magic These candles are going to emit an aura of necromantic magic, so it'll be something they can pinpoint, and they can tell that those are particular candles. The other thing we wanted to throw in was how to extinguish these candles. Yes, you could physically snuff the candles, but what if someone cast a wind spell or a water spell or something like that? Would these be able to snuff the candles?
0: And so I think we ended up deciding on if one of the candles falls into the area of effect of one of these spells and is not specifically targeted it's a 50 50 you roll a die and on a 1 to 10 it doesn't go out on an 11 to 20 it does
1: and that gives it a good fair chance again it's not targeted it's how much situational awareness while they're fighting or while they're getting ready to fight
0: and the wonderful thing is if your party hadn't picked up on these candles being magical yet and they just sort of drop one of these spells and accidentally snuff out one of these candles the candle falls into the area of effect of the spell. You have them roll a d20. They don't know why they're rolling a d20. You don't tell exactly. them. Exactly. They roll a d20 and they're like, okay, I got a 13. It's like This candle goes out and all three hags suddenly turn their attention on you. And they are most upset with you.
1: Exactly. So I think let's go ahead and go through. Let's break down the hags and actually how the hags interact in combat. We'll start with the night hag. We'll go to the green hag. And then we will end up with our hannis hag.
0: All right, so the green hag is going to be the weakest of the three, going by challenge rating.
1: Going by challenge rating, yes, but see, the night hag has the ethereal ability, but when it comes down to physical combat, she's not quite up the snuff with the green hag. The green hag is definitely more feet on the ground than the night hag is.
0: Yeah, but what the night hag has that the green hag doesn't is magic resistance. The night hag automatically gains advantage on all saving throws against spells. So you're going to have to get up and close and physical with a night hag in order to drop her. But if you get up close and physical with a night hag, she's gonna go ethereal and get away from you.
1: If she chooses to run. But if she does choose to fight, she does have a fairly solid claw attack. So she's got a plus seven to hit and she's doing a 2d8 plus four. But that's pretty much her physical attack. She's got that, she does have innate spell casting. So at will, she can detect magic. That doesn't do much. She can cast magic missile at will. So depending on her level, I forget what level she's going to be at. She'll probably be...
0: She has 15 hit dice. So if you want to go strictly off of hit dice, she would be a 15th level caster.
1: Okay. So, I mean, she's going to be able to throw quite a bit of these magic missiles. That's not really your strongest spell in the wizard spell book.
0: I'm pretty sure that the number of... I don't have my player's handbook in front of me, but I'm pretty sure that the number of projectiles off of a magic missile is tied to the spell level of the spell slot that you use. It is. And because it's an at-will ability, it's going to automatically be the lowest spell level possible. So it's still going to only be three darts.
1: Okay, I did not know that for an at-will ability. So yeah, that does... It's going to
0: be three 1d4 plus 1 darts.
1: Yeah, she's not hitting really hard.
0: No, but she's the magical support for these other two.
1: She is definitely the magical support. And that's why I was saying when it comes down to actual combat, I think the night hag is probably the weakest of the three when it comes down to swinging and throwing knuckles. She's on the lower end of that spectrum.
0: I mean, all of the hags are pretty stout. I was really surprised whenever I went into looking at them. They've all got an AC of 17.
1: Yes, and that's nothing to sneeze at. The that's, other...
0: that's actually really stout for our monster especially with their challenge rating.
1: The other ability that the night hag has is twice a day for each spell. She can Plane Shift herself only, and she has Rave Enfeeblement, which will half the amount of physical damage any player can do, which will really mess up your fighters, will really mess up your monks and your clerics. And she has a Sleep spell. Depending on how that goes, she could put a player to sleep, Shift Plane, pop back Ethereal, and hit a Nightmare ability. If she's able to keep someone asleep that long, that could actually be a bit of a challenge for them. But that's about all she's got. So the next up, we've got our green hag, and our green hag tends to be your swamp hag. That's your kind of your stereotypical.
0: It's the Wicked Witch
1: of the West. She totally is the Wicked Witch of the West. This one, she's got a bit more of a physical presence. She's going to be hanging around a bit more. A cool ability she has is she has mimicry, so she can mimic animal sounds or humanoid voices. So that's really good. One of the non-combat things she has is she can do a uh, minor illusion. So if you were to find a hag in a town or in a city or walking about, it would more likely be a green hag. She's kind of more of your hag about town, I guess you would say. She also, at will, has Dancing Light, Minor Illusion, as we've talked, and Vicious Mockery. The thing that
0: green hags really have going for them, especially in combat, is their Invisible Passage ability. They're able to, at will, turn themselves invisible and move around. And they pop back out whenever they attack or cast a spell, or whenever you manage to break concentration.
1: If you want to get sucker punched, green hags will definitely sucker punch you.
0: Absolutely. And they'll use this to get away.
1: Yes, they if, will do that the, too. If
0: the fight starts going poorly, they're going to use that to get away.
1: Yeah, they will definitely slip out. Just like the night hag will tend to use plane shift to slip away at some point as well. The green hag also has her claws, that again is a two d eight plus four with a actually a plus six to hit, so she doesn't hit as frequently or as well as the night hag does.
0: She has a lower health pool
1: too. You're right. But again, she tends to have more of the on the field. I thought she had actually another on the field spell casting ability, but I am not seeing it. Just the illusionary appearance and invisible passage. There are spells they get as being part of a coven, and I'm trying to find where I put that.
0: I've got it here in front of me. Just going off of stuff that they can use in combat. They get Ray of Sickness as a first level spell, hold person as a second level spell. At third level they get bestow curse, counter spell, and lightning bolt. At 4th level, they get Phantasmal Killer and Polymorph. And 6th level, they get Eye Bite.
1: That just sounds fun.
0: Yeah, they get a lot
1: of stuff. Right. And so that's where your green hag shine. Again, in that coven setting, they're going to be a little bit beefier. And they're actually going to be more physical. Your night hag, she's going to be kind of your slippery, behind-the-scenes trickster. Your green hag is going to be a bit more sneaky sneak. But again, also, she's going to get her hands a bit dirtier.
0: The way that I would actually run this particular coven is the Annis Hag is going to be the big bruiser that gets the melee characters tied up.
1: Oh yeah, your Annis Hag is definitely going to be... She... I'm trying not to use my profanity here, so I will refrain.
0: She is the most powerful of the hags in the published material at this particular point in time.
1: When you see the scene from Aliens with Sigourney Weaver, you know, get away from her, you bitch. She was talking to the Annis Hag at this point.
0: So the Anis Hag is going to be the one that's got the melee characters tied up. The Night Hag is going to be the one that's holding back and utilizing all of these Coven spells to impose magical effects onto the party as a debuffer, as a controller. And then the Green Hag is the one that's going to turn invisible, slip into the back lines, and sucker punch the wizard.
1: Exactly. Because if anybody deserves to be sucker punched, it's, well... Definitely not. the. Don't sucker punch the wizard. That's what the barbarian's for. That's a date in some barbarian lands. I don't know. So yeah, the Anish Hag is really, she's a very, very stout creature. She will definitely go toe to toe with just about anything. She's got 17 armor class. She's got 75 hit points. So she's got a decent bull.
0: She's actually got the smallest number of hit points of all three of them.
1: Which is weird, but she's got her innate spellcasting three times a day. She can disguise self which is kind of boring, but she also has Fog Cloud, which can really mess with things. Cover and terrain movement, things like that.
0: Especially if you have a bunch of players who are ranged, because then you end up having blindness on top of everything.
1: So we're saying all this and you're like, well, why is the Santa hag so beefy then? Because she comes up to you, she gets not one, not two, three, three attacks per round. She gets one bite and then two attacks with her claws. She's going up, and then she is just a whirlwind of destruction. Her bite is a plus eight to hit, and that's going to hit for 3d6 plus five piercing. And then each of the claws is also a plus eight to hit, and that's going to deal another 3d6 plus five. So she is going to come in just swinging and biting and spitting. And if that wasn't enough, she also has the ability of a crushing hug because everyone wants to give Mama a hug.
0: Come give your granny a hug,
1: and that's also gonna be another plus eight to hit
0: for a whopping nine d six plus five bludgeoning damage.
1: That is insane
0: and if the creature it attacks is large or smaller, it becomes grappled, and every turn that it's grappled, it takes that ninety six plus five bludgeoning damage again.'
1: Cause in mother Russia, Anna's hag hug a bear. So the only drawback for her is she cannot make any melee attacks while she's grappling a creature because she doesn't need to. She's going to smother this thing. So yeah, that Anna's hag can be brutal. Absolutely brutal.
0: Squeeze until your head pops off.
1: Yes. Pop your leg zit. So those are our hags, and so you'll break down, you'll have your hag fight with these three in a coven. This will definitely be a very long, very intense combat. Again, this tends to be Ian's tall board versus a wide board. Again, a tall board being you have one or two really big, strong characters versus a wide board where you have a bunch of smaller, swarmy-type characters. So whether you strike a deal or you decide to fight, this will wrap up the scenario, and then you can do whatever your epilogue be. The only curveball that we haven't thought how to fully resolve yet that we're still trying to work out is the question of what if one, two, three members of the party decide to take the deal and the rest of the party decides to fight. That's something you could work out as a DM.
0: That would be an RP thing.
1: Yeah, that would definitely be an RP thing. But stranger things have happened in many, many a game.
0: There is one other thing that I wanted to bring up. Something that I kind of want to do, but I want to discuss first. Because we are giving them layerability. ability. Because they're the big end fight of this arc, and we're talking about 11th level players, I want to give them legendary resistances, which is, for clarification, a legendary resistance is the entity gets three legendary resistances so that if they fail a saving throw, they can burn one of those legendary resistances and save on that saving throw instead. And what I would suggest is that we have it be three legendary resistances for the coven. It, I like
1: that. so they it, get one each.
0: Not necessarily. Could be the same hag uses all three.
1: Possibly, yeah. But I like that. And that kind of...
0: Have that tie into the magic of the coven. And if they manage to break the coven before all of the legendary resistances are used up, that's it. They're gone. Because it's tied into the magic of the coven.
1: I like that. That feels really good. That ties into that three, the whole three fates thing. That has a good thematic feel to it, and it kind of ties in with everything we're doing. So yeah, I would have no problem throwing that in.
0: Okay. I wanted to bring that up and have us discuss it, because whenever we ran this, it ran as a very hard encounter, according to, was it Kobold Fight Club?
1: Yes, and you can find that. That is actually kobold.club slash fight.
0: We'll end up posting a link after this uh, episode goes live.
1: Yeah, because again, that's not our idea, our intellectual property, but that is a wonderful resource to use. It goes a long way to help building an encounter. I don't know who built that, but my hat's off to that person. Well done.
0: So I think that pretty well
1: does it. Yeah, that wraps us up. So we hope you enjoy the encounter. Like I said, we plan to have this written out as a usable module for you all. By the time this runs, this hopefully should be out a couple days before Halloween. Uh, it's when we plan our Monster Mash. So if you guys have a party of people and you want to have a Halloween session, you don't know what to do for Halloween night because COVID still sucks and it's still there. Let's run a hag session and let us know how it goes.
0: So next week, we're going to be getting back into our Homebrew Showcase. We're going to be starting in on character number three, which I believe we are making our wizard next. That is correct. And we have settled on the Yonti as our monstrous race for the wizard.
1: There's a lot of room. The Yonti's... They don't have any lack of options, which I kind of really like. The Yanti, there's several classes and stage of, of Yanti, So this will actually be able to go fairly in depth. It'll be a lot of fun, I think.
0: I'm actually really fond of the Yanti, the way that they're done. I'm interested to see what you can bring out of this, because I'm struggling to find stuff that I have issue with.
1: That's what I'm saying is the Yanti was actually really well built up. But then, you know, are they half-breed? Are they full? I mean, there's all so many things you can work and tinker with. The Yonti as written particularly as something that's not one of your normal top-of-the-line player classes, they put a lot of thought into the Yonti, and I, I'm happy for that.
0: They still have the issue of being an evil race, so we'll talk a little bit about the lore, I think, and the reason why we don't like evil races yet again.
1: Right, but we hope you have a great Halloween or Sawin, uh, however you wish to celebrate that, or Dia de Moretos. All of those are good time. Happy All Saints Day as it comes up to you all for those who are Catholic and celebrate the Saints Days. We will catch you all next week.
0: Thank you for joining us for the Undercommon Taste podcast. If you enjoyed it, please pass it along to your friends. If you have comments, corrections, suggestions, or ideas, please feel free to send them to us at undercommontaste at gmail.com. If we like your idea, it may make it into a future episode. You can also find us on Twitter under the handle at UCTHomeBrew and on Instagram and Facebook under Undercommon Taste. Our theme music is Massacre Anne, written and performed by Mary Crowell and used with permission. You can find Mary online at marycrowell.bandcamp.com or on Patreon at patreon.com slash Crowl. Again, thank you for joining us, and stay safe. You'll hear from us again soon.